0: It's not about having the power to save. It's about being empowered to be a voice and to have someone's back.
1: Welcome to our podcast, Teaching and Leading with Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. I am Dr. Amy Viaclia, Director of Educator Preparation. And I am
2: Dr. Joy Patterson, Chief Diversity Officer.
1: Our podcast
2: addresses issues through the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion, along with solutions
1: for us to grow as educators. So join us on our journey to become better teachers and leaders. So let's get into it. Hi, Dr. Amy. Hello, Dr. Joy. How are you today?
2: i am doing fabulous and i am ready for this conversation i'm ready to get started
1: i am too we work with such amazing people and i love having these conversations about people's backgrounds and their research and with dr candace smith how that research has informed where she is now as an assistant professor at governor state university so let's do it Uh, dr candace smith as i said is an assistant professor who works alongside us she has been serving in education for over 20 years she began her educational career as a pre-kindergarten teacher implementing a pilot program prior to moving to chicago public schools she taught third grade for cps and then third and fifth grades for 10 years in Lansing, Illinois. For three years, she served as an assistant principal at another school in the same district. In 2018, Dr. Smith earned her EDD in Educational Leadership for Teaching and Learning from Lewis University. Dr. Smith most recently served as principal at Holy Family School in North Lawndale, And she also works with schools as an educational consultant. But what I'm most happy about is that she is one of our colleagues. So welcome to our podcast, Dr. Smith.
0: Good afternoon.
2: Oh, happy to see you, uh, (laughs) Dr. Smith, Dr. Candace. Uh, So I know today we're going to be talking about a topic that's really near and dear to you is exploring anti-racist practices. Uh, which is very timely, and so we're going to get into that later. But before we get into that, let's talk more about you because what Dr. Amy read—it was a very—you have very diverse experience. Tell us more about your education journey and your scholarly work.
0: Okay, well, it actually began long before I received that first position. And I volunteered at a school in Cabrini Green during my college years. And I think that was the first time I actually was, presented the opportunity to eye open to the systemic oppression that happens in schools and the separation based in community and zip codes. So that was my first time really looking um, and experiencing. in that particular teacher at that school Really taught me a lot. We had a lot of intense conversations about why schools in Chicago looked different and led me to reading things like Jonathan Kozel's Savage Inequalities and really just delving into that work. And that's important because that laid the foundation. What's really important about that is that that's when my white saviorism kicked in that I didn't realize until later on in my career. And that's important because when doing this work, it's not about saving others, it's about working on yourself and having an impact around those around you and not taking power away from other individuals. So through college, I had this dream that I was going to uh, work my way up in CPS and I was going to change the entire system and become CEO and everyone was gonna have a fair chance and I couldn't wait to just get get in there. I had this whole plan laid out. Uh, I was gonna save everyone You know, I did I did my pre-K pilot at a center school and then I received um, my first job offer at a CPS school on the Lower East Side and teaching third grade. And from the moment I was introduced, that was eye opening Uh, that that took what I learned at that those other experiences to a whole new level. The administrator there, there were it was it was abusive relationship with the school and I didn't understand why no one was doing anything about it. This also t- speaks to knowing the schools before you go on, uh, knowing the community, but also knowing the schools. I was not aware that prior to me coming, 22 teachers had left. So the third grade students I had had already experienced, I believe it was six teachers by third grade. So that, that in itself was, this is an issue, this turnover rate, what's happening? Why aren't we having these discussions? And so I was there for a year, Um, And I had planned to stay. I actually begged to be able to loop with my students because I thought that was really important for them to know their teacher and know they were staying. And um, I was turned down for that. And then a few of my colleagues really pushed for me while it was still early enough to move on because it gets worse every year. And that in itself is depressing. So I did leave. And what's interesting is after I, I let my families know, I let the students know And I went into a suburban school and I thought, there's going to be, it's going to be different here. And the problems were different, but the same. So the school I began working at had recently become a Title I school, or they were becoming. And a lot of the conversations I would hear between the lines were things like, you know, these great families are leaving the community. I don't know what to do with these kids coming in. Everything's changing. And here's what happened. We had a a change in the community. We had a high African-American population coming in, African population and Hispanic population. And a lot of the white families were leaving. So these underlying conversations that were taking place, these these were biased. This was racism happening. And I was very surprised. Um, The teachers had no, not all the teachers, but a lot of teachers that have been there a long time Um, were very upset by these changes and had no foundation for working with other diverse populations. Um, So I was there for 10 years and my mentor, who was the principal and eventually became the superintendent, I had told her that I was feeling like um, I I was just going to get a master's in curriculum instruction. I didn't really want, you know, I'd given up on this whole going to save the world thing. And she said, no, you have important work to do. And she talked me into getting my master's in administration. And I'm still grateful to her for that. Um, I became an assistant principal in another school in the district. And while there, that's when I was working on my doctorate and my dissertation work. And then, which laid a lot of the foundation for my work when I switched to being a principal in North Lawndale. So I've had childcare settings, public, private, school, city suburbs experience. So definitely been in a few different locations.
2: Thank thank you for going into all of that and getting to know you better. And I know Dr. Amy has a question, but before she gets to her question, I just wanted you to know that there's still time for you to run for the U.S. presidency.
0: (laughs) Oh, goodness, no. (laughs) Let's just start. Let's start local. We got a lot of work to do. (laughs) We got a lot of work to do right here.
1: I agree. There is a lot of work to do. Okay. Okay to set us up for the conversation that we're going to have today. Can you share a little about your dissertation research?
0: So, yes, absolutely. My dissertation happened while I was assistant principal. So it was also near the 2016 election. So there was a lot brewing and happening. The school district, as I said, I worked in that over the past 10, 11 years had had a lot of changes. I started, the more I was having conversations with families and these topics were coming up, I really got tired of hearing the word colorblind and my students are my students. And and I decided, like, we need to sit down and really talk about what we're saying and what we're saying that we don't see, that we need to be seeing. And so I did a book study with a group of teachers, uh, majority white women. There was one woman of color in the group who actually reached out and said, can I do this, even though I'm not white? And um, it made the group that much more robust. And we used the book, Waking Up White. We did a peace circle type format and they would journal in between. So they'd read and they journal. And then we'd sit in these groups and have these uncomfortable conversations and just get into our feelings around this and transfer. How does this transfer into your classroom? How does this transfer with your parents? How does this transfer to your peers when they're having these conversations? And again, it just happened to be in the midst of the election. And then a lot of my end towards the end of our work together, a lot of the conversations were about, um, you know, we were we were behind this, you know, myth of colorblindness. However, now blatant racism is being encouraged. So now are the transitions even more powerful and then. The, the pain um, that a lot of them felt after the election and dealing with those feelings and supporting students. So a lot of that came out in the research as well. The biggest goal being to have these conversations, to get uncomfortable because we can't do this work without taking care of ourselves and getting to know ourselves first. So I have two
1: questions. One, I didn't share what your dissertation title was. Oh, I apologize.
0: It's racial consciousness of educators.
1: My second thing is when you talk about uncomfortable conversations, what were some ways that you framed this work that you were doing to allow for those uncomfortable conversations to take place, to really, like you said, to unpack this tension and to journal What did you do? How did you make that happen? Because I think that's really important for the rest of what we're going to talk about today.
0: Well, there were a few things. So first of all, that journaling was supposed to allow them to put those honest, uncomfortable feelings on paper so that there wouldn't be, you know, there's a little more of a pause when you're in a group and you're just opening up to like what you're aware of. But in that space, when they're able and you know, there's research to, about pen to paper. So it was literally pen to paper writing. And they were allowed to explore those feelings prior to us getting together. So, you know, kind of pouring them out, being aware of them. And then the book confronts a lot of those topics. So setting up the space was important, them understanding it had nothing because because some one of the risks was the fact that I was their administrator for some of them um, or an administrator in the district so they they were a little nervous about that in the beginning but then i think the more i engaged with the work with them i think that showed that i was willing to admit to things to talk about my own things that i needed to work on we were in a location where no one was around they knew that um the work their their names would be protected you know i put all those normal things in place so that they could speak freely and Anytime something came up where it got really uncomfortable in the room, we would all kind of sit. Um, I wouldn't jump in and say, okay, so you're feeling uncomfortable and now let's talk about how you're feeling uncomfortable. It was, let's sit for a minute. Let's sit with that. And having to sit with that and kind of process and digest that information. And, and as we watched feelings evolved, it went from instead of feelings of protectiveness, it became... You know, we went past the denial and then it towards the end, it got angry. I mean, especially with all the things that were being said during the election. I think um, there was a lot of anger in there, confusion, and then, you know, just a lot to process. So just, I think when we allow space and don't try to tell somebody, oh, you're feeling uncomfortable, you know, how, describe your uncomfortability. You know, it's like, no, sit in it, be uncomfortable. I love that. Um, yeah.
2: I really love that. I mean, this conversation is so timely for so many reasons. And this year we celebrated for the first time here at the university, uh, National Day of Racial Healing, which set off a number of things. And now we're having this book discussion on the little book of racial healing, which are also uh, helping to facilitate. Through that process, I, I ran into a white, Middle-aged male professor, and who's part of the book discussion. And he said so many times he wanted to say something during the discussion, and he had to wrestle with himself. And he says, I'm a white man. I've been talking too much. I need to start listening. And so he said, and that was just today that he said that to me. And he said, I'm always willing, you know, wanting to share and put my views out there. And he said, for the first time I listened, and he said, and I heard. And I think it's just so important, you know, to have these courageous conversations and to be honest with ourselves. Illinois is one of the few states that have adopted this Racism Free School Act. And actually, Governor State University, along with one other university, we un- the only two universities in Illinois that supported this. <laughs> so this Racism Free School Act requires now that every Illinois public school, P-12 school, adopt policy on race-related acts of hate, train their employees on how to recognize and report when this is going on, inform students and families about their rights, You know, so it's really trying to curb that because we're seeing the numbers increase so much around racial harassment. And what really was a tipping point for me is when, I don't know if you all know the name, I'm going to say her name, Antoinette Kandia Bailey. This is the higher ed administrator who recently died by suicide after accusing the university leadership, I believe it was the president, of workplace mistreatment. So she was claiming racial harassment and then she committed suicide. And so racial harassment is increasing and it's real. And I don't have a question here right now, but I'm wanting you and Amy to kind of react to this because in November 2021, a report found hate crimes in schools increased by 81% from 2016 to 2018. And 48% of these were related, were racially identified. So it is estimated that 1.6 million students are targeted by hate speech in a single school year. Another study recorded that five racist incidents are endured by Black students every day. So it's not a question, but I want to hear your reaction to kind of what the state is doing and some of the figures that we're we're hearing.
1: I saw a recent report that really extends that. And it was just, Jaw dropping and scary that during the five year period between 2018 and 2022, schools were the third highest group of hate crimes. But what is really even maybe more troubling and more difficult for me to wrap my head around is if we have children enacting hate crimes and maybe the adults in the building are guilty of these hate crimes, who is the model for these behaviors? I cannot wrap my head around why. Anti-Black and African-American hate crimes were the highest with 1,690 offenses that took place at schools over that five-year period. Anti-Jewish hate crimes, anti-LGBTQ, And these are reported by the FBI in a huge database. They have to have a database to keep track of hate crimes. And that's Uh really troubling to me. Uh But who are the models for our children? And what do we do to, to counteract that negativity that is coming in from so many places, whether it's social media, from the news?
2: I looked at a program. There were five white women who teamed up on anti-racism, and they describe themselves as the solution. It was like, we are mothers, we are the nurturers of our kids. We are responsible for ending this. That we have a huge role. This is our role. If we want it to end, it needs to start with white mothers. So I want to also know your reaction to that too. And is that something that you also claim.
0: So those are two really large questions. I do believe that white women are a huge source of a lot of the issues. I think that to your to your question Joy, I think they're right as as mothers, we have a responsibility. I think all parents have a responsibility. I think we have a role to speak out and to make sure that people understand that they should be uncomfortable having openly racial, racist conversations around us. And just a quick, I'm not gonna give all the details, but just a quick story related to that is the fact that I went to a one of those makeup parties in my neighborhood, you know, where they sell you product or whatever. And I came late and the women had a little bit to drink. And somehow, because I'm in education, the conversation started about school supplies. Then it got into free and reduced lunch programs then i got into immigrants not knowing english and then i got into my people as they were referenced you know candace your people that you're always defending your people that you're always and this is like I'm, this is my neighborhood these are the people i was around so speaking to that it's important that people and and of course i said my piece and then i made my exit and that left them hopefully feeling uncomfortable Speaking to that, those women, yes, they are representative of needing to make a difference. But the solution is so there's so many steps involved. So we need to remember, like, we're Midwest. okay? so we have our beliefs and the way that we have conversations around this. But through my consulting, I've been to places, rural communities where it looks a little bit different, where the conversations are. These microaggressions slip in and the lack of understanding of history and knowledge. And then I've been to communities where the racism is blatant. And that's not to say the work around us doesn't need to get done. It definitely does. But the way conversations happen are different. And I think one of the people I've, I've read and, and follow and heard speaks to, you need to be having these conversations at the dinner table. You can go into public forums. You can go into all these places and say you're having these conversations and post your little posts. But if you're not having these conversations at the dinner table or at the big family dinner tables that they say not to get into politics, then you're not really invoking any change. And so we do have a role. And as white women and men, we need to be understanding A, intersectionality, but we also need to be understanding that we're the ones representing racism, you know, we're the ones being racism, we're the other, we're the ones placing people in categories of other. And so if you're either white or other, then that's where these issues start coming. And to speak to Amy's point, it happens in schools because of what happens at home. And Regardless of what we may or may not think politics play a huge part in what happens in schools. And if it's okay to say on a platform as a politician, then it's okay to say in schools as children perceive it and as a lot of schools allow it. So unfortunately there's schools that continue these and allow these things. I want to point
1: out two things that you said, and I want to unpack a little bit more for our listeners Mm -hmm. is microaggressions mm-hmm. and intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Could you do a little bit, like expand those terms for us so we can really think about where we are and our own intersectionality?
0: So microaggressions are those little things that have a big impact. So they're continually said, especially to people of color, like, oh, you have such good... um your language is so good. You have such good vocabulary and enunciation or things like asking somebody where they're from just because they're not white Um, or not being aware of, you know, certain continents having multiple locations. You know, um, I think recently there was, um, and I, I apologize for not having his name. He was Singaporean and the Congress kept quizzing him about his If he was part of the Chinese government, he's like, no, I said I'm from Singapore. So even in Congress, we have people that are, you know, so it's it's those things that continually build up and beat a person down and and talk about that othering in terms of intersectionality. So this is where we say, oh, I want to fight for women, you know, like feminists, right? I'm a feminist. I speak to this, but I don't stand up for black women. Or I won't have conversations around the things happening in Palestine. So it's you, you can't just be supportive of one group. It's a matter of being a part of all of these groups and the way they all cross in terms of the normalized expectations, um, especially we'll just focus on America.
2: We are exploring anti-racism practices with Dr. Candace Smith, who is an assistant professor at Governor State University and is an expert on the topic of anti-racism. I do want to address the elephant in the room. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: What does a white girl who has a PhD know about acts of racism and why is this topic of special interest to you?
0: Well, first, I want to say I'm not an expert by no means. I'm just a woman who's continually willing to learn and grow and feels very strongly about this. Um, There's a lot of details for how I ended up here and why this ended up being something that I feel very powerful about. And honestly, the earliest time I can remember where I felt the need to speak up for somebody was fourth grade, Jonathan Virgo, my best friend at the time, was overhanging out in the yard. We were just playing on the swing set, hanging out with our friends, and my stepdad had a problem with him being there because he was black. And indirectly said something to me, and I was just appalled and offended and and then I started to notice people in my family would make comments. Not about him in particular, but it just I became aware of it. And I didn't understand this. I had a lot happen to me in my childhood and I had the cloak of whiteness that kept me from severe penalties and getting in trouble and carrying burdens with me. I was, my troubles were very much ignored because I was this white girl growing up and seemed harmless despite all the things I did. That had I been, for example, a black man or a black woman, I probably would have been noticed more. And those things all my life stood out to me. And whereas I wanted, to make sure I was seen as a human, I wanted to make sure that everyone had an opportunity to be seen for who they were. And so this work carried on. And, and as I shared in the beginning, I started to see these things and I had to work through my own white saviorism to understand that it's not about having the power to save. It's about being empowered to be a voice and to have someone's back. And you know, all these experiences have led me to say, What are we doing? Where's the humanity of education? Where's the humanity of us as people? Why are we ignoring so many things happening in the world? And why are we so scared to face the fact that we need to grow, that we need to look at ourselves? And so this work just has always, uh, I've always gravitated towards it. And um, during my last principalship, I had some run-ins with the police in the neighborhood and you know i'm not i don't want to categorize anyone into one group but there were a lot of things said to me by those police officers that just speaks to the system itself and you know when you're when you hear things like well where do you think you work or what do you expect Um, or the differences in the way you're treated you know those types of things really broaden open your eyes to the things that are happening i want to talk about education
1: as a teacher educator and think about principal preparation. We in Illinois are in the process of implementing the Illinois State Board of Education culturally responsive teaching and leading standards. And one of the big standards is the analysis of personal biases. So first of all, I just wanna get your take on the standards themselves. Do they go far enough? Are, are you seeing that they will be beneficial but secondly, who do you see is most uncomfortable with these standards?
0: So first, I think anytime we standardize anything, it gets a little tricky because then it becomes another box to check or something to do. So I think it depends on who's implementing them and the importance they see in them or feel in them if you want them to be done correctly. So what does it actually look like implemented versus oh, I'm checking a box, it's a standard, this is an activity we're gonna do kind of thing, right? Happens with any standard that's out there. We just, we do it because we have to. And so even with the Racism-Free Schools Act, that's something I hope that we're more careful with, you know, that we're intentional in our practice. And as a teacher and principal preparation professor, I try to be intentional in everything that I do. So if I'm saying I'm doing the standard, what does that look like? Am I? Is there an outcome that is intentional? And I think when we're talking about things like culturally relevant pedagogy or learning standards tied to that or culturally responsive teaching, I think we need to make sure that we understand what those standards mean and that their purpose is for the betterment of society as a whole. Because essentially that's what education is. We're supposed to be educating the future to make the world a better place. And so when it comes to those personal biases, Who do I see the most uncomfortable with, you know, examining their bias? Typically, it's white folks because we don't want to be labeled as racist. And we assume that bias means racist, whereas everyone has some form of bias. And I think that's eye opening in my one of my classes. We take the Harvard online quiz and it has all different categories. So we take one in class and then we kind of share our thoughts without, you know, I, I don't require anyone to give me any information. We talk about this is your personal work to be done. This is how you're gonna have an impact on your students. So what does bias do? I mean, we make judgments all day. We're always looking at each other, passing some sort of judgment, but bias becomes harmful. So what do you need to examine? And so a lot of my students come back and they're like, you know, I took a different quiz and I was very surprised that I have some bias in that area. And the conversation is, well, what do we do about it? And then are we integrating these practices throughout the semester and having these conversations around these topics because that's when you know that you're actually doing that intentional work and not just checking a box.
2: You know, I know we've been talking a lot about P-12, but educators are experiencing racial harassment in higher education as well. And not just students. We're also seeing educators experiencing this. You know, as we know, higher education, faculty, there's a lot of international faculty in the US. So there's a huge increase in students who are making personal racial bias remarks on evaluations. And so this is on the rise, and it's very disheartening. I mean, there's so many questions here, like, why are people more emboldened to racially harass? Could you imagine doing that to your professor when you were in college? I can't even imagine. So why are people more emboldened to do this you think we'd be getting better not worse and what are things that we can do to end this you know so now getting into some strategies and you're giving us some along the way too but I'm just wondering why people are so emboldened to do this and you alluded to that too some of that too because some of it is political
0: yeah I mean I don't think that's this is an easy answer we're going to solve all the world's mysteries today I do think similar to social media or the internet. I think, um, students assume that these evaluations are anonymous, which, which they are anonymous, but I mean that we, you know, that, that it's fine because no one will know. So I can say what I want to say, just like I would, you know, they talk about trolls on social media and that sort of thing. People who feel there's a power in anonymity, right? So I can be I can be myself completely I don't have to hold back regardless of who I do harm to and you know political climate you spoke to people who believe that like I should get to say what I want I pay for this I mean there's a lot wrapped up in that you know blatant racism you know if you came to class racist you're probably not going to leave cured of your racism to end this I, I just I think we need to continue having the conversations. You know, I tell the teachers that are teacher candidates, you are working with the actual hope for our future, right? There's a lot of adults there. We are not going to be able to change. However, you are working with the children. And this is where we have conversations about same and different. And one of the conversations we had recently was when a child, especially like thinking of early childhood, points out a difference in somebody, right? Why do they look like this? What is the typical response from the parents? Say that, Shh. right? Instead of well everyone looks a little bit different. Their their skin is a little bit different. Um we can, not you know, like getting into those conversations about why we're different and then finding why we're same. So like in our classes really having those conversations about same and different and that we're in a great big world. This is not this this is not what the entire world looks like. You know, there's a lot of push for, oh, in your classroom, make sure you have something that represents the students in your classroom. Yes, very important. I do not disagree with that, but also have literature and posters and information and lessons on people that are not in your classroom. You know, are we teaching about this entire world or are we so focused on where we're located that we aren't having these conversations? And so I think for some of our students, We have to remember they're coming from different locations, from rural populations, from more isolated, from communities where, you know, these conversations are acceptable. So I think it's like these small things and calling these things to the table that we need to make. My biggest message is we need to make racists uncomfortable again. Like, I I know it was still it's always been happening. Systems have been set up this way and continue to call them out. But I think we also need to say it's not okay to be blatantly racist, regardless of what those in power may be doing.
1: So I would like to know uh, if you could share some of the work that you're doing with local schools. Uh, mm-hmm. What what does that work look like? And what would schools do tomorrow? What's, what are small steps? Big question. A couple mm-hmm. of directions well, you could
0: yeah. go. I can just explain a couple things I'm doing. So, right now I'm working on a research project, and we've just started trying to connect with school districts, which has been a challenge because we were using the word anti racist. And what we were looking for was back after 2020, after all those conversations and everyone posting their little black boxes and saying they're willing to do this work, and the schools saying, We're going to do these things, we're going to have these conversations. Where are we now? And what is happening and what have the impact of those programs or you know, DEI officers or all of that. What what is happening now? And what I found was most of the districts and folks I reached out to, anti-racist, they they highly recommend not using those words because it's controversial. And so we changed to culturally relevant pedagogy, and I've only been able to find a very small percentage of school districts who are willing to have the conversation with us. And the goal was to talk to all stakeholders. So have a conversation with administ- school level administration, teachers and faculty, and then parents and students. Because if you're doing this work, the parents and students should be feeling that impact of change, right? So like, that's that should be your overarching goal. But we're, we weren't hearing back. So Very small percentage of people that said they'd be willing to talk to us about this work, tell us what they've been doing. And so uh, that's alarming to me that we're back to being afraid to use the word anti-racist because it's politically charged anti-racist, not racist, against racism. And that's what we're afraid to use. And then my additional work, I do consulting and it's social emotional learning with schools. I'm a part of a team and that's become controversial. So talking about whole child development, which is embedded within this work, those conversations come up as well.
2: Yeah, I have a philosophy, too, about uh, how do we move the needle on this? And I believe it's really the knowledge, you know, having the knowledge first, that whole exposure to more cultures and learning about yourself, learning about other people, having these opportunities, like you said before. Not to be that parent when a child said, oh, why does that kid look like that? To just be very honest with your child so that they're ex- exposed and accept people that are different than them.
0: Mm-hmm. And so,
2: having that knowledge, I think we have to have the knowledge before we can have the heart. And you know what it's like when you have the knowledge. You didn't look at that kid when you were in fourth grade as a stranger. You knew him. Your Mm -hmm. parents didn't know him like you knew him. And so you had already developed a heart for him. And so we have to have that knowledge in order to develop a heart. And then we can do action. And so it starts with us with exposure to a lot of knowledge. So I do have a question about, or we could do something subliminal, you know, we could
0: just have some. Well, just to speak to that before you ask your question, you know, the other thing too is. When all this was happening, I know a lot of parents were saying, I don't want to make my children uncomfortable. I don't want them to know that racism exists. And it's, I had so many conversations with parents about, oh, it must be nice to be white and not have to talk about racism. You know, as my friends are having conversations with their children about how to protect right. themselves and be safe. And, Absolutely. you know, it's like you're, you're not protecting your child. So we should be talking to our children about how to look out for their friends. You know, my kids know. If if they're out with their friends, how to protect them or how to be an ally like those are what are you doing? How are you putting the work in? You know, Uh, are your kids out there protesting with you or are you keeping them at home and hiding behind? We do have an issue with white liberal women in America, too. Like we're speaking to these things, but not all these things. Right. So. There's a lot of work to be done. And and let's stay on that for a moment. I don't know
2: your views, the two of you, your views on spanking children, but I bet you if your child runs out into the street and almost gets hit by a car, they probably got spanked that day out of fear. That's what it feels like to be a mother of a black kid is that out of fear. So that same fear that you have, that my child could have run out in the street. So this is not the time for you to let me have a little conversation with Johnny and tell him about the dangers of car. car- no, you want Johnny to remember this and associate it with some kind of pain. Yeah. So this is what it feels like, you know, when you're the parent of an African-American boy. You have to teach this is what you do when you're driving. This is how you speak if you get pulled over. When you go out with all of your white friends, this is how you have to behave. I can't, you can't afford to do what they do. You can't afford to get into trouble. You don't have that luxury, you know, so you're having all these conversations and part of it, you're feeling like, well, I don't want to teach my kid about racism. I don't want to keep perpetuating this. And teach my kid about racism, but at the same time, you're like, I'm trying to save my child's life. So these are things that I need to share to keep them alive. So mm-hmm. this these are this is very, very real. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, these are real conversations. These are the conversations that happen all the time. I have a grandson and I regret the day. I regret the day that we have to have these type of conversations with him. I do have a final question for you as we kind of wrap up here. This is this has been an extraordinary conversation. I mean, we can have this conversation all day. But I do have a question about having a policy such as racism-free school. And the reason for that name is exactly what you said. Anti-racism was a little harsh. So it was like racism-free schools and not put it on the person. So, you know, we're always looking for things uh, where we can smooth it out, right, and make it palatable. So, when we have these policies, such as racism-free school, how is this policy? How do you see it different than a bullying policy or a harassment policy? And what would be your hope through a policy like this?
0: Well, so when we're talking about racism versus bullying and harassment, I think it's important to educate the adults within a school about what the differences are. And I think as I read a little bit more about this act and and got more information, it's about also educating similar to how we do the mandated reporter. And what I'd like to see though, is that this becomes work within schools. And although I know there's going to be a lot of resistance, I mean, I've been around enough teachers that are like, oh, it's another thing mandated. I do this already or it'll pass or any of that. What I'd like to see is the work actually being done. So teachers, this is what this looks like, right? Administrators, this is what this looks like. You know, it has to start from the administration being able to to really do this work to discuss what acts of racial bullying, racial harassment, racial violence, what that actually means and what that looks like. It's not just a thing to be ignored. It's not just a thing that kids do. It's life altering. It's, um, it does internal harm that lasts and, and just perpetuates generational trauma. And so for both parties, I know some of the things that I read was like kids having to leave schools or the teacher being removed. Instead, this, this asks for, are we having the conversations? Are we doing... Um, the restorative practices afterwards, is is that child having an opportunity to heal from their harm and to call out their victims? or their victims being called out? And so my hope is that we take this and actually apply it with its intention, because we go through in education a lot of phases. And I tell my students this all the time, the pendulum swings from one side to the other. So we had zero tolerance. Then we had restorative practices that were used in overused without consequences. And instead of being in the middle and saying, no, there's consequences restorative practices say they're supposed to be, you know, so finding that middle point in education. And I think this work is critical for us as a society. And if it's done properly, we can heal a lot of harm for children and prevent the cyclical response of what happens when you're traumatized in your school years. Right? Because then what happens? Do you want to be in school when you experience this kind of trauma and no one stood up for you? No. And then we end up dropping out and we see these cycles. Um, and this is what we talk about when we talk about systemic racism.
2: My hope is that we're able to do that. My fear is that when you have a policy, there's also consequences that that means someone's going to break that policy. and when they break that policy, then what happens to them? And what's the backlash, you know, when you imagine teachers getting in trouble for breaking the policy. So that has its consequences too. But yes, my hope is what it is that that I share what you hope and that it pushes the needle forward, that we continue to get better, that we continue to wipe out racism. If we can wipe it out in schools, then we wipe it out in our nation.
1: Absolutely. Wow. There's just so much to take away from this conversation. And I really hope our listeners tuned in and listened. There's a lot that can be taken into the classroom tomorrow. Yeah, to think about. A lot of conversations that administrators might consider having with their faculty and staff. Because when we look at five-year period of 1,690 offenses, Those offenses have faces, Uh both the offender and the one who was the victim. And if we can do something, but it starts, it starts with our conversations. Right.
2: And it starts with knowledge and getting to know each other. And I just want to say one final thing before we go. And I'm just so happy that we had this conversation just to give you a visual on my way to work on Friday. I saw a young, uh, young African-American male running to school. So I looked at my clock and I said, oh, he's late already, you know? And he still had about three more blocks to go. And I said, he's, he was perspiring. He was running as fast as he could. He had a heavy book bag on his back. He's running on the, on the shoulder of the street. And I thought to myself, when he gets to school, When he goes to his first period of class late, how will that professor treat him? Will you treat this child as you're late, get out of my classroom, go to the office? Or do you know this child? And do you know what this child had to do to even make it to your class? And I think we need to really get to know each other, get to know our students, because once we see them as people, once we see them as equal, we get rid of all this racism.
0: That speaks to the whole community. You know, when when are we gonna get back to our schools being our communities, right? Their communities, our, our children and students and the families, like we spend a lot of time together in our schools. So when are we gonna get back to the fact that it's a community and we need to work and think like a community?
2: Uh-huh. So thank you so much, Dr. Candace Smith.
0: Thank you. Have a good afternoon.
1: Thank you for listening to Teaching and Leading with Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. Visit our website at leading teachingandleadingpodcast to see the show notes from this episode. We appreciate Governor State University's work behind the
2: scenes to make publishing possible. Stay tuned for more episodes with Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.